In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. You're here with an Irish flag on O'Connell Street, and it's St. Patrick's Day, and I'm standing up for my rights of free speech of liberty. In the 1916 proclamation, we are allowed free speech. We are allowed to do stuff, we are allowed to come into the capital city and walk on our own streets, yeah? And we are allowed to say no to police, oppression, COVID-19 regulations and violence and murder, yeah? Say no to murder. Because it's religious discrimination. That's it, basically. They're discriminating against Christians and making everybody equal and we're not equal. You know, Jesus died to give us the freedom from man's rule. It doesn't matter if it's the black death and his people, bodies dying up in the streets. We have that right and no man has the right to take it away from us. Why did you come along to the protest today? What protest? Why are you here? To get my vitamin D that my doctor said is essential. So do you feel you get better vitamin D at the spire than perhaps in your garden or near your local park? I get it naturally from God. Henry McKean reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, have you ever wondered about the social and psychological impact of living with a stammer? Well, take a listen to this. So I have stammered for my whole life. Um, I, you know, I've I've, I've stammered for as long as I can remember, but I have always hidden it. Uh, I avoid words and situations to the point where only a few of the closest people to me know about it. And it's not something I've ever spoken about at work. So none of my colleagues had any idea at all. Um, but I worked with Sophie Rayworth, as you mentioned, um, a, a few times last year. We, we, we did a few stories together and I uh, tweeted in support of International Stammering Awareness Day last October. And I had no idea who'd seen it. Um, and I certainly had no idea she had. And then one day I was working in the newsroom and she came up to me and said, I've just, I've, I've seen your tweet. What? She had no idea that I stammered. And I think my honestly, my first reaction was just thinking, oh, uh, uh oh, how how can I stop this conversation? <laughs> you know, I had no idea she would have she'd seen it. But she was really, really interested and she kept asking me about the techniques. Like, how how do you do it? What what are the techniques? And it was the first time I'd actually spoken to anyone at work about it. And it felt really strange, but quite liberating in a way as well as as well. And she she persuaded me to open up about it. How difficult or how easy was it for you to go in front of the microphone like you obviously work in tv you work in radio uh, in production but how difficult was it to go on the other side uh, to go on that side of the microphone <laughs> it was it was quite nerve-wracking I've never done anything on screen before so and so, so to 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 do that has been has been a, you know it's been it's been amazing but it's it's definitely been quite scary and to do that and kind of talking about stammering as well which is something I've never spoken about has been a really strange experience i mean it, it has been it's 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 been amazing but um but yeah i mean there, there have been moments that have been challenging but what's made it all worthwhile is the amazing people we speak to in this documentary they are they are honestly they're they're so eloquent and articulate and they're they're all so inspirational and that was really amazing for me to have a chance to kind of sit sit down and just have have a chat to have a chat to these people about stammering and have those conversations where i'd say something and they go i do that too and i ne- i've never had a chance to do that so that was that was absolutely amazing. I'm sure it was. Um, how difficult was it growing up with a stammer, or was it very difficult? I, I, it, it, it is challenging. Um, you know, when when you look around you and you see other people appear to speak with such ease, 
and then your for, for me I was I was struggling to get a lot of words out including my name which led to the title of the program so it is challenging you know that it's you can sometimes you know you get very embarrassed by it when you do have moments of stammering it's very frustrating and it's kind of you know it 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 can be very hard but yeah it's it's been it's been really really nice speaking to other people who stammer and just kind of realizing that I wasn't alone in that I mean you know I still have moments now weeks where my my stammer becomes more audible I'm not able to the avoidance techniques I use don't don't work quite 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 as well so it's kind of a constant challenge but you know I I I have learned to to manage it and I actually I do think stammering in a way has has made me a much stronger person. You talk about the difficulties and and obviously I'm not doubting those for a second but I'm talking to you and I've, I've heard you interviewed elsewhere you're incredibly eloquent you're incredibly articulate have you had to develop skills how have you you know talking to you I think a lot of people would say I had no idea that you have a stammer I know it's um it's 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 I find it really hard to explain but basically and I I, I've I've used the the analogy of a swan before you know it may look smooth on the surface I'm very aware that a lot of the time when people talk to me I do I don't appear like I'm stammering but underneath the surface there's kind of this mad paddling going on to to maintain the external image and so much of stammering is is beneath the surface. For me, I'm I, you know I I I I I, I think ahead. There you go. There you go. I stammer. <laughs> not 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 many people get to hear that. I think ahead in every conversation that I have with people. I know the words and the sounds that I find hard to say, and so I don't tend to use them in my vocabulary. I I really have just learned over the years to leave them out, and I've become very clever at just working out in advance when I may be in situations where which might be more challenging for me. What a terrific woman, Felicity Baker from Youth Talk Breakfast. On Thursday, Karen Cuddy explored a year of COVID in his hometown of Kilkenny. Here's a short clip with Father Willie Short. Now, I can only talk from my own experience of my own parish, but the moment we got word on this, the first thing we did as a parish community was to set up uh, COVID sanitisation teams. And this really worked extremely well for us because these teams were present every time that we had a gathering in the church, whether it was 50 people or whether, you know, the numbers went down. And these people maintained the social distance and maintained, again, as I said, all the regulations and guidelines. But it was difficult because people turned up. People turned up to the church. And therefore, you know, our sanitization team, they had to decide, really, and, you know, I know some churches gave out tickets. Uh, some churches kind of tried new kind of creative ways of allowing people in. But what we did was we just went with the thing of whoever was first there came in. Now, it made us, ha- we had to relook at the structures of our churches. Yeah. Uh, you know, not just in, inside the church in relation to the numbers of people we could fit in. But again, I can only talk from my own experience. We had to put outside speakers outside. We had to kind of provide, you know, a way in which people could communicate with us and we could communicate with them. Uh, people sat in their cars but it was extremely difficult uh, particularly on our senior parishioners you know who you know who come to mass every single sunday you know who have their regular seat uh, you know who sit with their families or with their neighbors and so it, it has been really a very difficult time funerals then uh, would uh, were, were they particularly difficult to handle over the last year absolutely and i think every priest in the country kind of, you know, agonised over funerals, as, as I do myself, uh, because suddenly the numbers were reduced. I mean, I celebrated funerals where sons and daughters were standing outside the church 
where grandchildren, where relatives, where neighbours and friends of, of the person whose life we were celebrating, you know, just couldn't come into the church. So it's been an extremely difficult time in relation to funerals. Now at the moment we have 10 people in our churches. But I have to say, you know, that again, I can only talk from my own experience, the, the funerals I have celebrated, you know, that people really understand and families take responsibility uh, for the people who can come into the church. And, and again, as I said, you know, our sanitization teams, our undertakers, that we all work together. So this has kind of brought us together. But it is extremely difficult to, to look at 10 people in the church, especially in times of tragedy or in times of COVID loss. Uh, it, it... In a broader sense, then, in, in terms of just uh, attending to your flock, as it were, like it's, it's you know, it must be difficult to be a shepherd and not be allowed to come, go near the flock. Absolutely. You know, yes, yes. Uh, how, how how have you personally found that disconnect? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's been very difficult, really, because I mean, you like to see your people, and your people like to see you. But I was doing a recce yesterday. Since the first of February, right to yesterday evening, I have received, which is most unusual, it hasn't happened for a long, long time. Exactly 123 letters, handwritten letters from parishioners. And, you know, these are mostly, again, senior parishioners writing to, you know, ask for prayers, or maybe they have a grandchild or a son or daughter who's ill, or maybe there's a particular situation, maybe it's an anniversary of a loved one, or maybe you're just remembering somebody. And uh, that is one way. I mean, 123 letters from parishioners for people who are trying to keep contact with us. Now, of course, we have other means. We use social media, of course, with all the various social media outlets. We have a, you know, a text system whereby we contact the parishioners. And again, many uh, parishes of course are using the webcam and live stream uh, method which is, is very very good but I think you know have you have you been able to use that you know unfortunately uh, we are in a black spot in relation to broadband oh. so I join with many of your listeners yeah. who can identify with me now and again open up a can of worms now. absolutely there you go I mean not just in relation to industry business and work but also in relation to the church but you know uh, thankfully by Easter this year and hopefully we hope to be online um, this coming Easter so it's, it's a great way of, of, of keeping contact and communicating with people. But people still miss the on-ground experience of arriving mm. in church, going to church, you know, being part of the assembly. Uh, you know, people still miss this. And they tell us this. Yeah. They, they miss it because there's a ritual. There's a whole ritual surrounding coming to Mass that they miss. Uh, do you worry about the legacy of, of, of lockdown? And I'm not asking us to engage in kind of amateur public health <laughs> epidemiology no. here but I mean in terms of the the stresses and the strains and anxieties and, and the isolation that some people would have felt over the last year Yeah absolutely I would be very concerned and I think all of us are concerned about the mental health issues of people who don't, particularly people who live on their own or people who don't have the, the social outlets in relation to the church or other ways as well and I suppose down the line, you know, again, back to the funeral experience, down the line, I think, you know, people who did not have the, the chance to say goodbye to a loved one, and whether that was in a hospital situation or a nursing home situation, or whether that was not being able to attend a prayer service or mass for the person. So I think down the line, people are going to feel this very, very deeply. And I think, it, you know, it, it could have a very serious effect on them. Father Willie Short from The Heart Shoulder with Kieran Cuddihy. And of course, you can download the full Kilkenny COVID special on Newstalk.com. That's the Taoiseach, Micheál Martin, on the 22nd of January when he said takeaway pints had to stop. But just six weeks later, several pubs in Dublin and around the country are selling alcohol on a takeaway basis again. Um, you do takeaway pints, Yes. Just a... Yeah, 
So I just got a takeaway again. It's in a plastic cup. There is a lid on it. Uh, I got it at a city centre pub. It's 7 o'clock on a Saturday evening. There's about 7 or 8 people waiting outside the pub for takeaway pints as well. But no massive crowds around. Well, the fact you just said there that Gardaí have a, like They basically told you like pubs are allowed to serve pints. I just think it's a little bit ridiculous that I me and a mate of mine are standing here now. Why aren't we indoors, you know? I just I think it's a bit of a joke at this stage. So you actually think we should be indoors, never mind takeaway pints being allowed? Yeah, so why not? So it's going to be crowds gathering. It's all right to walk in and buy them, but you have to stand outside. So, like, you know, like look at us in the rain here. I don't see the point in it. It's the same thing that happened last summer. It's just going to be crowds, and they talk about controlled environments. So where's the controlled environment in that, like? Yeah, in a controlled environment, I think it shouldn't be a problem. I mean, if it's... I don't see the problem having a, a premises open and you have so many people in it. Two metres apart, seven points, I don't think it's, it's much of a problem. I think people are going to drink regardless in this country, so... You got a takeaway pint yourself? Like, why have you come out in the rain to get a pint? Just went for a bite to eat, and we just decided we'd have a pint. We haven't had a pint in a while, so just have the one. Probably get a bite to eat and get the bus home, so that's really it. No, not really hand it's just the two of us. I mean... It had been 20 people here to be a different story. But. Now, the Gardaí have told me that the sale of alcohol on a takeaway basis is not a breach of the current public health regulations, so pubs that are selling takeaway pints are not breaking any laws. I also contacted several publicans whose pubs are selling takeaway pints, but they wouldn't go on tape. But one city centre pub owner told me that he is going to continue doing it and that he is doing nothing wrong. He also said he sees takeaway alcohol as no different to takeaway coffee. However, not everyone agrees. The Licensed Vintners Association say that in the current circumstances, no pub should be selling takeaway pints for consumption on the streets. While Aidan Brown, who owns Patter Brown's pub on Clambrassel Street, said he thinks this will lead to crowds on the streets again. I see a good few pubs now back down the, the takeaway drink and uh, I myself would be against it really. A lot of places are just kind of just there to make the few bobby over and um, I think when one or two pubs are doing it just after Christmas there wasn't much of a deal about it and it just seems to be more pubs being added to the list every week. So come Paddy's Day now on Wednesday I'd imagine the city centre will probably be packed again, people congregating, town is going to be packed again, social media is going to, videos will be going around social media, they're all going to be blaming the pubs probably blaming the people that are, are going drinking in the streets but the situation shouldn't be happening uh, you can't go to get a haircut you can't go to downstairs stores and buy a few clothes yet you can congregate on a city street and drink as many points as you want there's no control over it obviously because you're not in the pub so there's no there's no control on anyone they can do whatever they want and and sure look I mean, it doesn't make it doesn't make any sense at all. It doesn't make any sense to have a thousand people on South William Street, and yet I can't let twenty five people in my pub on Monday. Barry White reporting for News Talk Breakfast. So you might as well be in a romantic relationship then, really, because it's because kind of it's almost exclusivity there. Yeah, but honestly, I wish like if if life were perfect, if the world were perfect, I would be madly romantically in love with Crystal. But the thing is, romantic love, in my opinion, 
um, it can become very toxic and unhealthy sometimes. There's these these things that happen to romantic partners where you feel like you own the other's time and attention. And I don't feel like I own any part of her. I don't feel like I'm entitled to her time, her attention, her affection or anything like that. So when we spend that time together and give that time together, it's all the more special for us. Mm. Um, I, I, I suppose also that, that like a lot of couples fight, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, inevitably about sex or having too much or not having too little, etc. You're, you're both relieved of that pressure entirely. Exactly. And that works best for us. Uh, and do you miss sex, though? Do you miss having uh, physical relationships? Yes, at times I do. Um, and I can I can go out and find it and have it if I really want to. Um, but it's not a high priority for me. I've never been, you know, driven by that in my life. I've always been driven by myself and my career and things like that. Um, there was a point in my life where the idea of romance and the idea of a physical relationship was top priority. And I realized that it was unhealthy for me because I kept chasing these happy-go-lucky chemicals. And mm-hmm. I realized that's all they were is just chemicals. And at the end of the day, I wanted to have a relationship with someone that was strong and um, safe and stable. And that's what I have with Crystal. Uh, and so when you announced that you were getting married and you went to tell your respective families, did you have to do a bit of explaining to them? So that's the fun part is we lied. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's much, so, much easier, yeah. <laughs> so at the beginning of all of this, we we basically said to everyone that, you know, it's a tale as old as times, best friends fall in love and get married or get engaged and then get married. Um, and we did that because we wanted people to take our relationship seriously. We were worried that if we did try to explain it to people, they would think that we were making a rash decision, a stupid decision, um, even sometimes an unconstitutional decision. Um, but after my TikTok went viral and my family all over the place saw it, they've been nothing but loving and supportive. Right. Okay. But, but I suppose that, you know, they, they know you both, they see you together. So it was probably much easier to get used to this idea. Right, because they knew that we were serious about this and that we have been functioning well for quite a few months together. Yeah, and but your your wedding, though, was, was quite traditional, was it? Yes, our wedding was quite traditional. Um, I don't know why, like, we, we thought because we were presenting as traditional, we needed to have a traditional wedding. Um, we put a lot of unnecessary pressure on ourselves on how we needed to be seen by the world. Um, and honestly, I, if I could go back and kind of change that, I would. Um, the only time Crystal and I have ever kissed was at our wedding ceremony. It was very awkward. <laughs> it was very awkward. Did it, I wonder, like, on the day, did people looking at you go, what's what's wrong with that kiss? Why, why are they both <laughs> yes. kind of recoiling from each other a bit? Uh, <laughs> I'm sure. I look at the photos and I'm like, how did anyone think that we were heart eyes in love with each other? <laughs> right. Okay. So was it kind of a bit like kissing your sister or something? I I wouldn't go to say kissing my sister, but yeah, it was just like kissing someone that you just really don't want to kiss. Yeah, yeah, I you know, what like you mean, when, yeah, yeah kind of yeah. like in those movies when the popular girl wants to, the has to kiss like the awkward boy. Uh, like it kind of felt like that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, I get that. What an interesting take on life, Janine Guercio from Moncrief.
Tangles. That's heard on The Tom Dunn Show. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. On Sunday, Susan Keogh spoke to Holly Ryan about her experience of gender-based violence. Here's a short clip. And then in relation to, you know, when you did give that statement officially and they were asking about what you were wearing, um, tell us about how you felt around all of that. Yeah, so I went to give my official statement the next day and I was asked all of the usual questions, you know, where did I sit on the Lewis? What did this man say? What did he look like? Um, And then there came a question, can you tell us what you were wearing? So I proceeded to tell them that I was wearing jeans, a coat and over the knee boots. At which point I was interrupted and he told me that he was going to write down that I was wearing boots. So just boots, not over the knee boots. Um, He explained that if he wrote over the knee boots, he felt that if this ended up going to trial, that it would be used against me. Um. So, I mean, you know, do we have a system where Guardi are trying to protect victims from the criminal justice system? You didn't. It didn't end up going to trial, Holly. Tell us what happened. Yeah. So as it turned out, the attacker was arrested and the Guardi did put a lot of resources into finding him. Uh, But unfortunately, he ended up being given a warning due to the fact that he was only 17 years old. Now, um, as far as I'm aware, this was not a decision that was made by Angarda Shiakana. They simply gathered the evidence for every case and hand that evidence over to um, the DPP, the Director of Public Prosecutions, who decide whether a trial should take place. So in my case, um, as far as I was told, due to the fact that the attacker was 17 years old, he was um, assigned a juvenile liaison officer. There was huge anger expressed this week, Holly, just to get back to to this week's events from women. Um, This whole idea of the only way that we can keep ourselves safe is to stay indoors after dark, as if we should limit what we do in order to keep ourselves safe. How do we move on from that? How do we move past it being a woman's responsibility to keep ourselves safe by, by, by making our world smaller. And I'm sure because you've had that experience of like leaving your friends at night, I'm sure you were going to, te- you rang your boyfriend, you were going to text somebody probably to tell them you were home. We've all done it. We've all, you know, done that as women. That's what we do. But I guess yeah. how do we move past that? Or what's your view on that? Um, I think it's important to acknowledge that these fears that women have been speaking of, particularly this week, they're not solely derived from stories of people being attacked on dark nights, because as we know, these situations, they are rare. Um, I think for many people, these fears stem from experiences that they were forced to brush off as maybe harmless fun or just a bit of banter. And I think it's the realisation that these experiences bring to women that we can easily end up under the physical power of the wrong man and we can't continue to tell women that they should alter their behaviors because it shifts the responsibility away from the choices and actions of the perpetrators of these crimes and i think the mere suggestion that there is any influence caused by women's choice of clothing or alcohol consumption you know it's a it's a symptom of a society that has accepted gender-based violence as something that we need to work around rather than tackle. And I think if in 2021, we're still reinforcing the notion that women should shrink themselves in a society to suit the unwanted advances of certain men, we're not going to get anywhere. And 
I think women resent the fact that this is a reality and even more so we resent the notion that someone could assume that we don't consider all of these potential risks every time we step outside our front door. This super courageous Holly Ryan from News Talk Breakfast with Susan Kyo. Hamilton is one of the smash hits on Broadway and it tells the story of one of America's founding fathers, Alexander Hamilton. The creator of Hamilton is Lin-Manuel Miranda and as part of the Celebrating America event to mark Joe Biden's inauguration on January the 20th, from the United Palace Theatre in Washington Heights in New York, Miranda chose to recite a poem by Seamus Heaney, again, the cure at Troy. Human beings suffer. They torture one another. They get hurt and get hard. No poem or play or song can fully right a wrong inflicted and endured. History says don't hope on the side of the grave. But then, once in a lifetime, the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. So hope for a great sea change on the far side of revenge. Believe that a further shore is reachable from here. Believe in miracles and cures, and healing wells. Call miracles self-healing, the utter self-revealing double-take of feeling. If there's fire on the mountain, and lightning, and storm, and a god speaks from the sky, that means someone is hearing the outcry and the birth cry of new life at its term. The words of Seamus Heaney as read by Lin-Manuel Miranda. But what about the voice of the man himself? This is Seamus Heaney reminiscing about a timid childhood. I don't know, I've always thought of myself as a sort of fearful and uh, conformist. I mean, I know I've uh, changed a bit and that is one of the uh, central gifts and mysteries in my own life, I think, because up until about the age of 17 or 18, I was uh, very, very uh, shy and I was extremely homesick, for example, when I went to St. Columns College at the age of 12. I cried easily as a youngster. I had my bottle till I was four. <laughs> In an interview with Melvin Bragg, Seamus talked about growing up with a sense of division and crossing the barriers between those of different persuasions and the potential for conflict to which he refers metaphorically in the poem Death of a Naturalist. I did grow up in a divided community that talked across its barriers very gently and intimately. I think of uh, our own threshold at home. The negotiation for milk was uh, a guy called Jim Gilmer used to come for the milk. There was just a kind of milli, milli meter of difference between the courtesies at the door with him and somebody else. I mean, this is overstating it, even the millimeter. Yeah, that sense of difference was both um, acknowledged and on. it wasn't a barrier at that level at all, as long. But it was. I, I was always. One was always aware of it. Uh, so yes, uh, from the very beginning of of my consciousness, almost there was a sense of of the divided world. I mean, I wrote about it fairly directly in in Death of a Naturalist, kind of heavy-handedly. Uh, the poem about set in Belfast, one of my few forays into the urban. <laughs> about the myth, the folklore of the shipyards where hammers were dropped on Catholics, etc. All year the flax dam festered in the heart of the townland. Green and heavy-headed, flax had rotted there 
weighted down by huge sods. Daily it sweltered in the punishing sun. Bubbles gargled delicately. Blue bottles wove a strong gauze of sound around the smell. There were dragonflies, spotted butterflies. But best of all was the warm, thick slobber of frog spawn that grew like clotted water in the shade of the banks. The beautiful words of Seamus Heaney there from great words and speeches from The Pat Kenny Show. Another texter says it is mad how people's anger just seems to be spilling over aimlessly. Misdirected anger is one of the most depressing things about public discourse on social media. Well, indeed. Uh, but then again, I suppose misdirected anger, uh, uh, social media is the home of misdirected anger. I suppose it becomes a bit more distressing when you hear it on a face-to-face basis. And in, you know, even in, in people's homes at misdirected anger, God knows Uh, what the effects of that uh, might be. And that's a kind of a slightly disturbing thought, I think. Uh, Breda says, Dublin city centre after Paddy's uh, parade is like the aftermath of a nuclear disaster. The city is destroyed, rubbish everywhere, feral children running around the place, a true vision of the apocalypse. Hopefully we will avoid all that, uh, thanks to COVID. Well, I suppose you could, yeah, if you see that as a good thing, I suppose that's true. Uh, Bill says that we will have to reinstate Arthur's Day for this year only so we can get our day of absolute mad carnage in later in 2021. Oh, yeah, Arthur's Day. Yeah, I kind of forgot about that. Uh, Pierce says, I have had it up to here with this lockdown. Tomorrow is the most important day of the year, hands down, and the pubs are closed. How are people supposed to celebrate St. Patrick if we can't toast his memory? It's a crying shame, uh, says Pierce. Indeed, and, you know, in all, in all the religious texts, and indeed if you uh, go into Trinity College uh, and read the original Latin, uh, it all says you must celebrate St. Patrick's Day in a pub. Uh, that's actually a central part uh, of Christianity. Uh, though Tony says, uh, would you please stop referring to St. Patrick's Day as Paddy's Day? It is, after all, the feast day of our patron saint. You don't hear the Scots calling it St. Andrew's Day or Andy's Day or the English calling St. George's Day Georgie's Day or the Welsh referring to St. David's Day as Dave's Day. Proper title from now on, please. Indeed. Uh, fair enough, Tony. I, I stand corrected. And indeed, if there's any other references uh, to this country I need to make, I will, of course, refer to the British uh, to tell me how to do it properly. From Uncrief. On Monday, Ivan Yates joined Andrea Gilligan on Lunchtime Live. I, I don't know how docile the Irish people have become, but the reality is that when this is over, there is going to be a massive economic referen- uh, reckoning in so far as that people have lost their jobs permanently and they don't know it yet. And mm. it, you know what I find, and I, I keep coming back to this, I, there are three types of people affected by lockdown. There's actually a third of the population we're actually doing better in lockdown. Mm-hmm. People in grocery, people in pharma, in health, in tech, uh, absolutely going gangbusters. There's one third not really affected, the public sector, and there's one third who've lost 90% of their income. So this notion that we're all in this together is absolute nonsense, and always has been. So I, 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 just, I just hope that people will start to focus on when we can start. Like in the UK, they had a UK budget, so the cost of this is going to be $355 billion. Have you heard one conversation, one conversation even, in Ireland about how much this is going to cost and who's going to pay for it? Yeah. You know, we've just, we've just 
absolutely in a myopic way focused on the public health issue to the exclusion of all else. Well, that won't last. Yeah, and the, the other side of that is, and I heard Leo Baradkar actually speaking here um, Thonish, the, on, on News Talk just last week, and one of the things we were talking about in the aftermath of that here on Lunchtime Live was like what I would sort of describe as a little bit of a, a lack of ambition. Like we hear Joe Biden talking about maybe, you know, uh, barbecues in July, on the 4th of July, and, you know, you, you hear June been mentioned as well in the UK, and there's kind of other, like these sort of like ambitious dates that people are working towards in other countries and yet I couldn't tell you what date like when we'd be looking at having anything open here in this country uh, I mean and I'm very critical of of the media the media have just not really gone beyond the the daily deathly and you know uh, the, the fact of the matter is the agenda of life after lockdown has to start someone to actually you know punch through and say you know what if the most vulnerable people are vaccinated. And, you know, that's no surprise that everyone's made a hames of the vaccine programme in Ireland. It's an absolute shambles. It's, it's back of the queue for Ireland in every respect. It's a disaster. So all of that is taken as red. But we have to actually have some sense of when we can get back to normal. Mm-hmm. Now, if you say to me that's April the 5th, it's June the 10th, it's the 1st of September, but a lot of people can't switch on or off their businesses like a tap. Uh, and as I say, Look around Europe. I, 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 I chaired a big webinar for engineers last week. We are the only country in Europe that every house, uh, construction site is stopped. In every other European country, construction is continuing as normal. Go figure, Andrew. Mm. The, look, you've been in the Houses of Power yourself. Any advice for, for Michal Martin and Leo Varadkar? Well, grow a pair. You know, I mean, the fact of the matter right. is that, you know what I mean, nobody elected Neffet. Okay. Uh, Stephen Donnelly in health? Well, you know, it's a whipping boy job. You know, I was in agriculture at the time of the BSE crisis. You know, I, I, I don't like to personalise these issues. Mm. Uh, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, there is a calamity factor, undoubtedly. Right. I want to ask you as well about one of the other things we're going to be talking about too, Ivan, um, here on Lunchtime Live, uh, about an hour's time, um, the pubs and the fact that they're closed, would you believe, 12 months today to the day since they shut their doors and put down the shutters. Um, I know we've spent, you know, uh, a lot of time over in, in Peter's pub in, in years yes, gone by. <laughs> I, I've no doubt you miss them. Um, yeah, no, I mean, obviously, uh, uh, what, what, I mean, you know, people said that we had a meaningful Christmas. My son couldn't get home because the flights were cancelled three days before Christmas. And on Christmas Eve, I was booked, you know, in a socially distanced thing to go out and everything was cancelled. And, and thereafter, I mean, the idea that we had a meaningful Christmas is, is, is not true. We had our worst ever non-family virtual Christmas for most people. So I, I, I absolutely feel for the whole hospitality sector, whether it's hotels, pubs, mm-hmm. restaurants, they have been they have been the sacrificial lamb to all of this. And anything they put forward, social distancing, masks, uh, sanitizers, procedures, they were just a blanket thing. And I have to say, I have to say that it is no surprise to me over debates over the last 30 years that there is an anti-alcohol agenda in the Department of Health. And by God, they didn't waste a good crisis when it came to the drinks industry. But the fact of the matter is, the fact of the matter is, you know, Drink is something, if you don't want to drink, that's fine. If you don't want to socialise in the pub and never do, that's fine. But please don't tell me and anyone else who might want to have a quiet pint, sipping in the corner on your own, how to live our lives. The wonderfully frank and direct Ivan Yates. 
from Lunchtime Live. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. On Patrick's Day, Ireland's Call spoke to Irish people from all around the world. Here's Simon Tierney. Come here, tell me this. I'm interested in how the social conventions might be different in Germany. Like in terms of the the rules of conversation and etiquette and things like that, how do you find that different to Ireland? Ah, stop. It was awful funny when we we came here first because, like, I suppose, like, as I said, German people are, are like so lovely, like we're very different, I suppose, culturally to Irish people, like German people would be they're very straight, you know, they they're very, very, very sincere, but they really like to follow the rules. So it's like there's a rule in place, you know, you you, you should go by it. So like I'll give you an example, like so say like the traffic lights. So people do not cross the road here unless the traffic lights if you're if you're at a protection crossing unless it's green. Like there's just like there mightn't be a car coming for like 20 kilometers but no one will move and if you went the crossroad like they people would shout at you you know what i mean like they would like what do you what do you do you know or like um for example like i think like do you know like sometimes at home like somebody say oh you know you must come over one the night or do you know uh oh, we we'll go out for a pint or whatever it is but if somebody says that here like they literally mean it like it's like you know if somebody says oh you must come over for a drink you'll be getting a text like within an hour or two to say you know uh we're kind of this is the time this is the date but um definitely for me one of the funniest things was kind of around kind of it's like german people are super super punctual so i remember like we had moved into an apartment and um there was something wrong with the bathroom and the plumber was coming he's like i'll be there at 10 o'clock tomorrow or whatever and i was like oh yeah i'm thinking he'll arrive when he arrives but like literally on the button at 10 o'clock like if somebody says they're going to be here at 10 they won't they won't ring your doorbell a minute before they won't ring your doorbell a minute after they will ring exactly i love on the it time. So, i love it claire yeah, so, sometimes it's, stereotypes it's, are rooted in truth I, I love it listen terrific stuff there from simon tierney from ireland's call on saturday john farty spoke to film director and screenwriter neil jordan for screen time your biggest movie in scale is definitely Michael Collins. Uh, I've, I've a personal relationship with that in two ways. One, I was, I'm sure everyone says this, yeah, I was an extra in the Crow Park scene that was filmed in Bray Wanderers. Mm. I'll always remember it. And I, in my later misspent, I taught English to Spanish and Italian kids. And I showed them that movie all the time. I must have shown it about 48 times in one year. So I, I know the script and I never tired of it. But I remember at the time, you know, various criticisms about it, historical accuracy, all that kind of thing. And it seems to me now that, you know, through maybe like people like Richard Carney or Dermot Ferreter, who've kind of given us different views of history that, you know, it, history's, you know, competing narratives to a certain extent and all that. It seems that movie has a much greater reception now. It's it's rightly seen as a classic in a way it wasn't 25 years ago. Is that your sense of it, that its appreciation has grown considerably? Well, perhaps, yeah. I mean, at the time, it was kind of like constructing a national monument, you know, and <laughs> everybody has ideas about what a national monument should look like. Yeah. You know, generally, national monuments are military figures on horses. You know, if the left leg is raised, it means one thing. If the sword <laughs> is pulled out of the scar, yeah. scar- out of the, you know, out of the belt, it means another. I mean, Michael Collins was made at the time when the uh, peace process was just when the IRA were, were attempting to disarm. So there was a huge amount of argument about what Irish history meant and what particularly the 1916 rebellion and the War of Independence meant, you know. 
And, you know, people took very, very, uh, very kind of intense reactions to those events and to any portrayal of them. So it was fine. I mean, I mean, it was, it was like making a, a film in the middle of a, of a national kind of row, really. But, <laughs> yeah. but I did enjoy it. I enjoyed I enjoy these situations of kind of absurd conflict. And I loved making the movie, I have to say, you know. Yeah. I really did. And it was a unique situation because I just made Interview with the Vampire for Warner Brothers, <clears throat> which made quite a lot of money for them. And they, they, they said, they asked me what I wanted to do next. And I mentioned Michael Collins. And, you know, they gave me a sufficient budget to make... To make it in the scale that 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 you that we all remember, you know. Yeah, Neil Jordan there from Screen Time, and of course you can tune into John every Saturday evening from six till seven. Okay, I'm going to leave you with now the delightful own Sheen and off the balls crappy quiz. Have a great weekend. Our winner tonight will be decided in the round that separates the men from the boys, the Joachim Kellys from the Joachim Loves. It's a no theme in particular, ridiculously easy rapid fire round. The score you get in this round will be added to your score in the previous round and 40 seconds for everyone to answer from the same set of questions. So we're going to start with the person with the highest number of points. And uh, I tossed a couple of coins earlier on. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> Did you? <laughs> he looks around, around the room. <laughs> so a, a, if it was Adrian versus Jer. Jur would get the nod. Ah, well, if it was on. Nathan versus Jur, then Nathan. No, 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 an Ireland Caps tiebreaker. And okay. whoever gets closest to this, okay. this okay. gets to go first. I so, like this. you're going to have to write this down again. Right. How many Ireland Caps does Liam Lawrence have? Oof. Too many? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> God, apologies to uh, former guest of the show, Liam Lawrence. Um, yeah, I'd like to distance myself from Adrian Barry's like completely... <laughs> yeah, great guy. Nonsensical. Sure, what have you got written down? We can't see you, so we'll go to you first. 17. 17, Adrian? 16. Nathan? 24. Adrian gets to go first because it's 15. Oh! gets 16, so he gets to go. What? Last. No, there should be another one now between myself and Jerry. Tables have completely turned. (laughs) Right. Adrian, you're That's legit. That's legit. It's gone on sporting knowledge. That's legit. No, 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 no. This should Are be, you, when, when it's a, a no. tie between everybody, okay. everybody should get the same amount of questions. No, that's legit. now it's no. just completely okay. unfair. No. Adrian has okay. earned this uh, 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 Just again. on a point of information, we were, all, we were all too high there. We should do it again. Doesn't matter. Yeah, everyone's buzzed. <laughs> no, everyone's no, no, buzzed. No, no, no. No one, it's different, different round lines. No, one, no one cares. I said beforehand, whoever's closest gets to go first. Adrian Barry, are you ready? I am ready on this. 40 seconds off. starts Probably. now. Who played Tanya Harding in I, Tanya? Alanis Morissette <laughs> No Marco Robbie uh, Who's top of Serie A Ger? Inter Correct Who scored Porto's free kick To knock Juve Out of the Champions League This week Acuna No Sergio Oliveira Traher Field Is in which county Nathan Waterford Correct Who is bottom Of the championship Wickham Correct If your Burn Cup Is at Leinster Preseason football competition What's the Connacht equivalent FBD League Correct Name the Camogie Player of the year no, Praise too long. A- A- Adrian, uh, name the Borussia Dortmund manager. It's not going to ma- matter yes, anyway. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, 
Farfield. Farfield, that's a joke. For, he, he got jokes across the SPD league and Farfield. They're open tried goals. Everything to screw me over, and still I came through it. They're open goals. Back to the Europa League for you, Barry. It's such a good winner. It, You're such a good is. winner as well. It's it's with such good grace. Uh, and sorry, the the where? Sorry, sorry. One second. Who played Tanya Harding in I Tanya? Versus yeah, where is Fraherfield? Come on! There's we're no equivalence there. Where is, where is Fraherfield, Adrian? It's in Waterford. That is where, like, it's a gimme, it's a tap-in. Uh, that wasn't the question. That is absolutely <laughs> ludicrous. That is ludicrous. Uh, can we get the music? Can we get the... It's the music. music for, for mute Nathan. Those, mute those um, guys, please. Let, let me have my moment once yours, again. Nathan. Uh, give give us your victory speech. Undefeated in 2021. Can anybody, anybody oh. come forward and challenge this guy? Barry's relegated. Back to the Europa League for him. Joe. Bring on... Phil Egan, we give him his beating next week. Just a couple no of sign weeks. of Tommy Rudy, thank Christ. Give me, give me some training in a couple of weeks, I'm telling we'll you. Keep, we'll, we'll keep, we'll keep Jared Gilroy, just because I like to see the bitterness and the anger and the depression in his eyes as he takes his beating once again. <laughs> go and, uh, go and lord it as the beast of Ballyhonis there. Yeah, he's certainly going to do that this weekend. Uh, thanks, Willie, for joining us this week on the Crappy Quiz. We'll be back next week where hopefully things are a little bit better. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill. A look back at the week on News Talk.